Everybody doing well? Well, we're starting with our last series for this year uh, today, and it's called, uh, our series is entitled Faith to Flourish, Faith to Flourish. And you can look at the very nice uh, gift that we have there, very nice uh, animated just uh, title for this series. And uh, we want to talk about how uh, you'll remember that uh, uh, previous series we had, it was about faith for tough times and how do we stand during tough times, but now we would like to even consider a little bit further about how do we not only survive and stand strong during tough times, but let our faith be faith that flourishes and grows and causes the kingdom to grow during tough times. And for us to be able to do this uh, series, we're going to take a study or a look at the book of 1 Thessalonians in the Bible. So I'd encourage you to read 1 Thessalonians in your personal quiet time. It only has five chapters, and, uh, but I'd encourage you to read them a couple of times over the next season. And just as we speak about it, to let the Lord speak to you through the book of 1 Thessalonians. And, and I'm going to introduce that to you a little bit this morning. We also have a, a great video clip. I, we don't have time this morning. We were going to play it, but I think our time, for the sake of time, I'm going to, they're going to put it on our social media platforms. And there's a great video clip that's a seven-minute introduction that tells you all about the book of Thessalonians, and please go and view that during the week. It'll help you in your personal understanding of the book of Thessalonians. But let me just tell you a little bit about the book of Thessalonians so that we understand why this book is applicable to us here in Pretoria in 2017 in South Africa, why we can look at this book and learn some things about our own faith and to let our faith flourish during these times. The book of Thessalonians may be the first epistle that Paul wrote, and uh, in, so it's a very new and young view on what was going on in the Christian movement of the time. So you can read the story in Acts 17. What happened was in, in Paul and Silas and, and, the, and with Timothy in their missionary journeys, they eventually found themselves in this city called Thessalonica. Thessalonica was a Greek city in, in, the, in Greece, and it was the second largest city in the Greek uh, world. And um, it was a very important city in the Roman Empire also. It was actually the spiritual home of what was called the, the Roman cult or the emperor cult. The Roman Empire in its development and growth came to a place where they started believing that the Caesar was actually a god and required worship. And that if you were a true Roman, that you worshipped at the feet of the Caesar and that you gave the Caesar uh, this respect that you would give to a deity. And this cult of Caesar worship was really strongly founded in this city of Thessalonica. Um, it was, the, it, it, it was a, on a trade route and on the sea, so it was a very busy you know, city with lots of people and lots going on. It was also a city very known for all its different forms of worship and that it had lots of temples for many different deities throughout the city. And uh, its life centered a lot around these worship elements that was in this city. And um, for us to understand a little bit what that meant in terms of the culture, you must understand that the, the temple of the day, that the temples that they had in their city, was probably like it, the roles that malls play in our lives would be what temples played in their lives. In other words, they went to the, the temple very often, and the temple was actually the seat and the place where much of life happened in terms of entertainment, in terms of the things that you were looking for, even shopping. A lot of it happened around the mall area, uh, the, the temple area. So you went to the temple, and you could go watch plays at many of the temples. They would have shows that were put on. 
You could do some of your shopping at the temple. You could even, you know, pay for your sexual needs to be fulfilled at the temple because a lot of the worship of the pagan gods that they had, that sexuality was a big part of how you worshiped. So temple prostitutes happened. So when you went out for a night, often in a city like Thessalonica, you went to the temple to go out and have a great time and express part of your worship with the offerings that you have. It's sort of, that was life. So it's in the midst of this city, we read the story in Acts 17, where, where Paul and Silas and Timothy went to Thessalonica. And they did what they would normally do whenever they went to a new place. They found the Jewish community, because the Jewish community had some understanding, obviously, of the promise of the Messiah. So Paul would go to the synagogues on the Sabbath, and the Scripture tells us in Acts 17, he did this for three particular Sabbaths, that he went to the synagogue and would preach and talk to people about Christ. And over this three-week period, he started gaining some traction. And the Scripture tells us that there were people that were being convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and were receiving the message and was turning to Christ and in our language would be, were becoming Christians. And these included some, of, some Jewish people. It included Jewish Greeks that were coming to Christ. And particularly, it also mentioned that some prominent women in the city were turning to Christ. So uh, momentum was gaining in this movement in the city of Thessalonica. But as it so often happened is when the movement of faith and Christianity begins, and I've spoken about this before, it challenges the, the existing powers. And uh, one of the powers that it challenged in the city of Thessalonica was the Jewish people and, uh, uh, you know, they're of the Jewish faith. So the scripture says they became a little bit jealous of what was going on and they had to find a way to stop this movement and break the momentum that the Christians were experiencing. So one of the ways that they realized they could do that is if they could get the Christians in trouble with the Romans, then the Romans will deal with the Christians the same way they did with Jesus. So the Jewish leaders went to the, the Roman authorities and said to them, these guys, Paul and Silas, we've heard about them because they've caused trouble all over the world already. In many cities and towns, you would have heard the stories of even riots and, and problems that was created because of them and their message. And their message is particularly troublesome because they're saying to their followers that there's only one king, and that is Jesus. And the only one that you're allowed to worship is Christ. That you're not allowed to worship the Caesar. And they stirred up this message and told this to the Romans to the point where the Romans then you know, started investigating and got aggravated. And uh, the particular event that happened is there was a person in the church whose name was Jason. And it seems like Paul and Silas were li was living with Jason at his house. And they went to Jason's house to go and arrest them. And to, for them to come and you know, give a defense of what they were doing. But Paul and Silas weren't there, so they arrested Jason. They took him in, and um, they made him pay a bond. They made him pay a, a payment to say to the, to that if, if a riot breaks out, he will be held accountable, and they will take his money, and he would be to blame because of the riot and the problems that were breaking out in the city. So at that point, the leaders of this young church, and as far as we know, that at most was a three-month period. So the leaders of this young church then decided that it was best for them that Paul and Silas leave the city. So they smuggled Paul and Silas out, and so they left Thessalonica. Now, as they left this small, smaller group of people, this young group of people in their faith, that they left them without any real experienced, established leaders, obviously had local leadership, uh, Paul was concerned. 
And after a while, he was wondering, is there still anybody of faith left in Thessalonica? Because not only were they now without leaders, and, and they were young, but they were beginning to experience the persecution that happened around the time of when they wanted to arrest Paul and Silas. And because these people have now turned away from, their, from, the, from the other gods, and have turned away from the Romans' worship, they were starting to be ostracized by their community. Now you can think about this, just imagine. If you're living and part of your family's habits is once a week you'll go to the temple and you go worship at whatever deity it is that you worship and you'll go to the, the worship of the Caesar, to worship the Caesars, however that happened. And, and that would be part of your lifestyle is you would go. And that sometimes often is, the, is sort of the family gathering point is we're going to go to the temple and we're going to go and do this together. And it's sort of, it's the things you speak about. It's how you lived life in that city is you did these things. Now you become a Christian. And now you suddenly don't join your family to go to the temple anymore. You don't eat the food sacrificed to the idols. You don't participate in the sexual worship styles that they had. You no longer are part of all of these things going on in the city. It started having a real impact on your everyday life. And this led to people saying, who are you, these Christians? and started, you know, distancing themselves, even from their own family members. So Christians were more and more finding themselves in a place of being left out, ostracized, even being ridiculed, some being arrested. They were just finding themselves at odds with the world that they were always so comfortable and, and always so part of. Now suddenly they, they, did, they had to reorientate their lives. How do I now live my life in this city Thessalonica, but I am no longer part of the culture and the way everybody does things. And these were the questions. And Paul was wondering, how are these guys doing? Are they able to stay in their faith? Are they able to continue with what they started? Or have the, has, has everybody left and have they fallen apart? And it's upon receiving news about the Thessalonian church that Paul writes the book of First Thessalonians. So I want to read for you his response upon the news that he received about what's going on in Thessalonica. So 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 1 to 4. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. We always thank God for all of you and pray for you constantly. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope that you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know, dear brothers and sisters, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. We carry on reading, where's my page here? In verse 5 to 7. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia, for wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of you, how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Verse 8. For when we brought you, to the, you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy 
from the Holy Spirit. In spite of the severe suffering it brought you, in this way you impact, imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all children of all believers in Greece throughout both Macedonia and Achaia. So the wonderful thing that is happening is Paul is getting reports about this community of faith, and not only are they still there, but they're actually thriving, and they're becoming stronger and stronger. And he writes to them with great joy, and he says, I thank God for you. I thank God for what he's doing in your midst. Your faith has become famous, he says to them. I don't have to tell other people about you. Everywhere we go, we just keep hearing reports about your faith and how you've turned to God and how you love God and the practical outliving of your faith has made your faith famous. It is obvious for everybody that God is with you and God is working in your midst. And he is so deeply thankful and celebrating that. I think for Paul personally, it must have brought him great joy and relief because perhaps he had a bit of guilt for having to leave them and flee and, and, and felt, oh, you know, I would love to have been with them and I'd love to be there and how it's going. And to hear this report must have been so wonderful for him. Their faith was flourishing despite the fact that they were finding it very hard and very difficult. So if we look at the story of the Thessalonians, we can go, wow, what is it that caused their faith to flourish? And what can we learn from that? Are, those, are there principles and truths that we can apply to our life today to say how my faith can flourish and how our faith can flourish? Because as we read the book of Thessalonians, it's, it's important to understand that Paul speaks to them on two levels. He first of all, speaks to them on the level of the gathered church or the gathered reality in, in the sense of the, the church in Thessalonica. In other words, he speaks to them as a group, as a community. But he also speaks to them as individuals. He speaks to them both as the gathered church, but he also speaks to them as the scattered church. He was saying to them, and he was hearing reports, that not only was their faith flourishing in their togetherness, but that he was hearing individual stories of how people's faith was flourishing in their own everyday lives. Think about it like this. If somebody had to write a letter and to think and a report on Hatfield, if there was a letter in the New Testament of Hat Hatfieldonians or whatever it would be, the letter to the church at Hatfield, and it, it would report on us, and it would give an overview of how we are doing in our faith. That letter would speak about us as a community, about the things that we stand for, about what we are achieving as a community. But it would also need to speak about the reports of what, are happening, what is happening in individuals' lives. Because faith is not just a community thing, it's also an individual thing, but it's also not an individual thing only, it's a community also. We are the light but we're also the salt. And he was recording about both of these levels he was speaking about, how the individual faiths were being expressed within a very difficult context and how the faith of a community was being expressed. So he was talking about their everyday faith, not only their Sunday faith, because we could think that a letter like this, and he says, wow, it's wonderful to hear the church. Perhaps in our minds we think, oh, wow, they, they, every Sunday when they gathered in our thinking now, there were more people. So that's what Paul means when he says their faith is flourishing. Their community is growing. And that was a part of it. But that's not all. He wasn't just talking about Sunday faith. He was also talking about Monday faith, Tuesday faith, Wednesday faith, th Thursday faith, Friday faith and even Saturday faith. 
He was talking about their faith that was flourishing in all of their life. And these were the reports that he was hearing about a church that was flourishing as a gathered church and a scattered church. One of the subtexts of the book of Thessalonians is holiness. What does it mean to be holy? And Paul's particular definition of holiness in the book of Thessalonians is this. Holiness is not withdrawing from life, but it is doing life in a new way. It is not withdrawing from life, but doing life in a new way. Often we think holiness is about the things we don't do. Holiness is being other than, it's being separate from, it's withholding ourselves. But Paul is not writing to the Thessalonians and saying the church is flourishing because it is gathering together and it's maintaining and holding to the faith principles. He's saying to them, you are flourishing because I'm hearing the stories of how your faith is impacting your city. How you are all living your life in your city, going to the same markets, being part of the same economy, living in the same culture, but yet your faith is not only enduring, your faith is busy challenging and changing the culture around you. And that happens when the church is scattered. When the church gathers, we strengthen one another. You know, come, when, whenever you come together, everyone must bring an encouragement, a song. When we gather together as the church, we grow our faith and we strengthen our faith. But then we scatter. And then the test comes, is, is our faith affecting the world around us. And here we get a view of a new, young congregation in a very challenging environment where their culture was, there was no form of Christianity in their culture. There was no impact, obviously, of Christianity because it just started in their culture. So they were in this very foreign environment and they were finding a way, like Jesus said, to be not of the world, but to be in the world. And they were doing well. They were flourishing. Why? What was it that gave them the ability to do this? Now, Paul answers us or gives us the idea of what it was that they were really good at, what they were doing well in verse 3. In verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians 1, he says the following. As we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope. Faithful work, loving deeds, and enduring hope. If we translate it from some other translations, perhaps the words, Paul was thankful for their work of faith, their labor of love, and their enduring hope. He was saying, I'm seeing in you these three things, and we all know these are the big three of the scriptures, faith, hope, and love. But he describes their faith, their hope, and their love. And he says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your enduring hope. Because these three things you were doing well at, it is, it is because of that that you are flourishing as a community of faith. Be, please note, these words he doesn't use to describe a state of being, an attitude. He's describing very strong actions. They were not just people that had faith, they were doing faith. This is why they were flourishing. They were not just people experiencing love, they were loving. They were not just people that had hope, they were people that, was giving, that were giving hope. 
These strong actions that they took, Paul says, it's because of these three things that you are learning what it means to be holy, and because of your holiness, you are flourishing in your city. Now, what, is, what are these three things about? The first one is the work of faith. Now, you can understand, you and I can understand, if you're living in a culture and in a city where you're getting ridiculed for your faith, where you're getting ostracized for your faith, where perhaps even you're getting persecuted for your faith, your belongings are being taken away, where it's hard every day to be a person of faith, then you can understand when somebody says your work of faith. Because faith is something you have to work at all the time. When we gather on a Sunday, and think about it like this, the Thessalonians gathered on a Sunday, and however many there were of them, they would read the Scripture. They would encourage one another. They would pray with one another. They would strengthen one another. They would tell the stories of their faith, and, and, and so that there was this little flame inside of them of the faith. And each of them had this flame. And when they gathered on a Sunday, they were adding fuel to this flame so that when you were in church on a Sunday, after church when you left, your flame was doing a little bit better and it was strong. Because the reality was that when you hit the weak, lots of water is gonna be thrown to try and kill and quench your faith, to destroy your faith. Perhaps the next day you go to the market and you wanna buy vegetables for your family. But the guy who sells the vegetables knows that you're a Christian and you've turned away from your community and he says, I'm not gonna sell you vegetables. And he shouts at you. And you go through the market and nobody wants to sell you vegetables. Nobody wants to be, have anything to do with you. Perhaps they even throw vegetables at you. They call you names. So you go home eventually and you haven't got any vegetables to give to your family. And you gather around as a family and you pray and you say, Lord, let us stand for you. And that whole week is a tough week. And you make it till Sunday and you come to church on Sunday and you start sharing with one another the challenges you face during the week and you tell your vegetable story and the other person tells about how they, they, they got demoted at work and how it just everybody starts talking about how they, they have to work. And then you pray again. And somebody reads the scripture and encourages you and strengthens you and you sing songs and you proclaim that our God is an awesome God. And you strengthen and encourage each other faith because this week you're going to have to work because somebody's going to try and kill your faith. That's the work of faith that they were doing. They didn't just have faith and couldn't just walk around. You see, and this is the particular challenge because they understood not only that their faith needed to be strong, but they needed to share their faith. They understood that their faith couldn't just be a private faith. It couldn't just be a faith that impacted on them and made their lives better and gave them, you know, a love for Jesus and relationship with Jesus. They had to take that faith and share it and give it to others. And that's the work of faith. Not only to keep my faith going, but to share my faith. Because faith cannot flourish if you keep it to yourself. Faith must be shared for it to flourish. Because it's not about my faith only, it's about giving faith to a community. So they were living these lives, working at their faith. And Paul could report and gave them a, a high score on their work of faith and said, I hear the stories of how you are not turning away from the faith. And that as you go into your city, you are actually bringing more people to faith. What an amazing thing the work of faith. Then there was the labor of love. You see, when you are in a place like that, 
and you're feeling the rejection, the persecution, the, the being different, the always being looked at funny, then love requires work and labor. Because it's wonderful when you get to church on a Sunday or, or when they gathered in each other's homes and they prayed and they, and they ministered to each other. It was wonderful because they started experiencing this thing called agape. And they started feeling what the God kind of love feels like. They started feeling it towards one another and experiencing. So that when the guy came and he told his vegetable story, somebody said, you, wow, I got some vegetables. And can I share my vegetables with you? And, and, and they were telling these stories and they were experiencing the love of God among themselves. But then something wonderful also happened. Not only did they experience the love of God among themselves, that when he went to the market and the guy swore at him, suddenly in his heart there was something different. He started feeling compassion for the guy. He went home and he prayed. And he said, Lord, I pray for that vegetable seller. I pray, Lord, that he will know that you love him. And perhaps it's me, Lord, that will show him love. So how do I Labor in love towards that person. Because if I don't show him the love of Christ, he'll never know it. And compassion and forgiveness. They, they began to realize that, like Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Like Paul says, and in that you are the same as Christ. They were doing these things and love was starting to shape them and change them. The labor of love. So again, Paul gives them a high score on their labor of love because they're not only they're not retreating in their love and just loving one another. They're loving this broken city that they are part of. And then the last one he says is your enduring hope. Hope. Because they had a hope. They had a hope in them. And this was their hope. That this Jesus that didn't leave mankind to die and struggle and, and experience the pain of a broken world, but that this Jesus that came from heaven and took on the form of a man and came and dwelt among us and experienced our pain and experienced our struggle and felt the full weight of sin and brokenness as we felt it, that's Jesus that walked among us and then died for us and was risen on the third day so that we could be forgiven, so that we can find salvation and be set free from sin and death and the brokenness of the world. This Jesus is coming back. And there's coming a day when His rule will be established and where life will be lived, not the way it is now, but the way it is supposed to be. But to them, that hope of Jesus' kingdom coming was so real because they, was, they were already experiencing it. They were saying, not only is Jesus coming someday, but in our lives, He has already come. He is here with us right now by His Holy Spirit. He is the King on the throne. He will not one day be the King on the throne. But right now, we as a community, me in my own life, I'm experiencing Jesus is on the throne. So the hope that I have for the future is real to me now. And it's shaping my life and my world right now. And I understand that Jesus prayed, Father, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And I am the one that can do that, that can live my life now. And I live my life not in the reality of a broken, dying world, but in the reality of a world where Jesus is on the throne. And I can change this world and reshape this world. So their hope was not an escapist hope. It wasn't a hope of, let's just endure, let's just hang on because Jesus is coming. 
No, their hope was a hope that was saying, we know for a fact that Jesus will rule ultimately for eternity. And it is our pleasure to begin His rule now already. We're going to live the way we're going to live for eternity. We're going to start doing that now already. Because the idea was that when you look at a Christian community, you get a a foretaste, you get an an advert of what eternity is going to be like. And you say, why must I wait till then? I can have it right now. Not perfect, but in its beginnings. Because a community of faith has hope. And a person of faith has hope. That when I'm out there in the world and I experience the anger and the bitterness and the hatred of this world and the, and the brokenness and the poverty and the struggle of this world, I feel it and I experience it, but I say, the hope of Christ in me is that I can live His reality now already in the midst of this brokenness. I can act differently. I can do things differently. So Paul gives them a great big yes, pass rate, distinction on their enduring hope. He says you're not just people hanging on, you are people living the reality of Christ. What an amazing thing, this young new community of faith. Now what does this teach us here in 2017? What does it say to us as a community of faith right here? What can we learn? What can we say about our faith, our hope, and our love? Can we excel? Can we flourish as Hatfield? Can you flourish as a believer in your faith, your hope, and your love right now? Do we need faith, hope, and love? Does the world around us need faith, hope, and love? Faith for every day, hope for every day, love for every day. Not Sunday hope merely. Not Sunday love and Sunday faith, but every day, Monday hope. Does the world around us need that? Do we need to flourish as believers? And I think we all agree, yes. We need to be the ones that are living in that same place. So how do we live faith for every day, 2017 in Pretoria? What does that look like? What does that mean for us? As a gathered church and as a scattered church, what does that mean to us? Can we hold fast to our faith in times of opposition? And perhaps that's something that we are getting used to more and more. That more and more as Christians, we are finding ourselves on the wrong side of the line, even legally. More and more the culture around us has become and is quite vocal and outspoken against the things that we believe to be true. I think more and more of us, we experience it. How the things that we believe is being ridiculed by our culture. They shake their heads at us and they say, Christians don't think. Christians are stupid. Christians are dumb people. More and more we find ourselves just, you know, they don't throw parties for us. They don't celebrate us. We're finding more and more, just even right here in South Africa right now, the opposition growing. Can we flourish in our faith? Can we stand and hold to the things that we say, this is what God says? But not in a way that just we hanging on, but in a way that helps the world come to faith. 
Because if we perhaps think just that our job is to survive, then let's buy a big piece of ground and we all buy homes together and we you know, start our own schools and our own universities and we withdraw from life so that we can be holy and pleasing unto the Lord. We have our own shops, our own sports leagues, where we do everything for Jesus. And we honor Jesus by withdrawing from the, from the terrible things of this world. Then we can preserve our faith. But then our faith's not flourishing. A flourishing faith is a faith that is the salt that goes into this world and changes. It is a faith that goes and joins the sports league and say, how can we honor Jesus? How can I live my life differently in business, in every area of life? And that's the challenge for us. Our faith needs to flourish in this community and in this city and in this nation. I mean, recently we heard, and there's much been said about the law that's changed that around how we discipline our children. And, and the Christian community has to go, okay, now what does that mean for us? And I think we as a Christian community need to first of all recognize that abuse is a real problem in our, in our nation. And abuse needs to be dealt with. And abuse cannot be something that can just, ah, oh, we shrug our shoulders at. It has very real consequences and it's a very real problem. But we must also recognize that laws can't deal with abuse. So now the government and people are trying to deal with real problems in the ways that they are limitedly able to do it. And we get concerned because the real issue with the law that was passed is not about disciplining our children and how we discipline our children. Because let me tell you, I have experienced over the last number of years that just taking away a cell phone is far more effective than most other forms of discipline. I mean, if my children, in, in the, you know, I don't, I don't have to do any harsh you know, thing with them, but if, if I had to give them an option, the last thing they want to choose is can I, taking away their device. They'll say, you can do whatever you want to with me, but just don't take away my device. So that's a great form of discipline, uh, you know. And, and we've got to find, how do we, but this is the challenge we have. The, the law basically now has said that the, the rights of an individual is more important than freedom of religion. That's basically what it comes down to. And that is the place where we're finding ourselves starting to more and more come to the wrong side of the line. And you understand it in many other places also. So how do we flourish in our faith? How do we find a way as Christians to not only preserve what we believe, but share what we believe? How do we as a church help people? Because we can stand and say, this is what we believe, and if you don't believe what we believe, then, you know, whatever comes to you, that's your problem. No, that's not faith that flourishes. So you, think about this in terms of you, in your workplace, in your street, in your family, in your sports group, in your place of leisure, wherever you go, tomorrow, this week, sometime, your faith has to be an everyday faith. How do you deal with the people that shake their heads at you? How do you share your faith with people that find it difficult with some of the things that you believe? Can you find ways to flourish in your faith? Hope for every day. What does that look like? We live in a nation where hope is a scarce commodity in many places. Well, at least in the way people talk. People are very quick currently to give up hope for our nation. People are very quick to 
draw lines. And if they're going to have hope, they describe that hope in very self-referential ways, in ways that hope is only to be found if I do what I need to do or if I preserve what's important to me. And right now we find, find, we're seeing the increase in our nation of tension and struggles because people are, people are trying to find hope and preserve hope. And perhaps the best hope is just if I just worry about myself or, or mine. Is that our hope? When, we at, when you're at work tomorrow or at varsity or in, your, or in your friendship group and somebody starts talking and they, and they, and they build this, this view that there's no hope for our nation, how do you flourish in hope, everyday hope? How do you bring everyday hope to the table there? How do you say, but Jesus is real? I have hope because I see a Jesus that like he didn't leave us alone the first time he said he's coming back. I see a Jesus. And because of what I see in Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But that to me is real now already and therefore I have a hope. And how is my hope inclusive? How can I share my hope? Because sometimes we bring this hope that is this hope that says, ah man, this world is gonna go to hell in any case if we must just hang on and that's not hope. For, the, for a people. Our hope is not this escapist hope, this hope that says, ah, it doesn't really. Our hope is a hope that says, when Jesus rules, life is going to be very different. Healthcare is going to be different. All these realities that we struggle with now, education is going to be different because Jesus is going to do it the way it should be done. But you know what? I have Jesus now, so I can already now start introducing things in terms of healthcare and education. As a teacher now, I can teach with hope and give hope. As a healthcare prof professional or, or person involved in that, I can now already provide hope. I don't have to just go along. I can see the kingdom of God come. As a mechanic, even mechanics, even as pastors, we can believe that there's hope. We see a hope in this country. And is that hope real or when it gets confronted with the, with the negativity and the hopelessness around us, it just <laughs> evaporates? Because if it evaporates, it's not real. And you and I have to ask that question to ourselves. What is our everyday hope? What is our everyday hope right now for the body of Christ in this world? And then the last one, our everyday love. Our everyday love. As a community, we are privileged that we experience the love of Jesus. Every Sunday when we gather, you can tap into the presence of the Lord. During the worship, God's love is expressed. Just as we greet one another, as we share with one another, we experience the agape love of God. It's real. We get some tastes of it. We even fail, but but we still come back and we say, wow, God's love is real. But then every day do we live that love? How do we deal with those that oppose us, those that stand against us, whether it's for our faith or for whatever reason? We live in a, a wonderful nation, but right now there are so many forces trying to draw us and pull us apart that wants to redivide us, that wants to break love down. 
And are, are we as the Christian community changing that? Are we stepping into this world and saying, no, there's a love that overcomes every barrier that you can mention on this planet. It can be overcome with love because of the love of God. Do we have that within us? Do we carry that everyday love? Or does it just disappear? When somebody from a group that's different than you shares their experience, shares their fears, shares the things that, that, that concerns them, can you feel compassion and empathy? Can you stand with them? Can you put an arm around a person like that and say, man, I... I I don't understand necessarily how you feel. I don't, I, I've never experienced that. But I, I just want to tell you that God loves you. And somewhere, can I just show you that you are worthy? And can I give you respect in some way? Or do we just add to the conversation and draw more lines and reject more people? Do we find a different way? Because our love, the labor of love, is what this nation needs. And I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 13, for these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Why is love the greatest? Because faith and hope is a response to the love of God that He gave you. Love is God's default position. It's who He is. God does not love. God is love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's the love that is the foundation for everything. Because I've experienced God's love and I know God's love. And because God's love is changing my heart and the way I look at other people and the way I look at creation and the way I look at this, this planet and the resources that we have. Because of the love of God that is real in my life, I treat this planet differently. I treat people differently. And because the love of God is real in me, I have a hope and I have a faith. And I'm prepared to share that. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians, you can have faith that can move mountains. It would be wonderful if we could move that mountain today. We can move mountains, but if you have no love. But you have love. I have love. Because Jesus loved us. You have perfect love. I'm not perfect in the way I love. I'm still learning so much and on a very difficult journey in the labor of love. But I have the love of God. Paul wants to write to us also, and I think he can, and say, wow, your faith is flourishing. I don't have to tell people about you. Everywhere I go, people talk about you. Does the city talk about us? Does the city talk about the church and say, wow, how we see the love? Look at those people. We, we think they're stupid. We think they're foolish because they always have hope. Can't they understand that there's no hope anymore? How dumb can you be? Or are we just part of? Are we holy people? One, in, in 1 Peter 2, and I'm ending with this. He writes, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. You! are a holy people. Not because you withdraw from this world, but because you live in this world, but you live the way Jesus wants life to be done. That's what it means to be a holy people. Can we stand together this morning?
as we stand. Can I ask that we all present our everyday faith, our everyday hope, and our everyday love to Jesus? Not our Sunday faith, our Sunday hope, and our Sunday love. As wonderful as that is, as wonderful it is to have that and to enjoy that with each other. But can we give our Monday hope to Jesus, our Tuesday love, our Wednesday faith, and say, Lord Jesus, send me. Send me. If a three-month-old Thessalonian church can do it in the midst of persecution, without great leaders among them, just the Holy Spirit and their faith, how much more can we see being done? Let's just pray together. Father, thank you for your word, the mirror of your word. Your word that speaks to us and gives us hope. Thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the faith that you are growing in us. That our flame is not busy dying, Lord. It's growing. It's becoming stronger. It's becoming a light on a hill. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the love that we've received. Thank you that I know that I am loved. Thank you that I know that you died for me. That you've made a place for me. But Lord, I thank you that I can now love others, that I can give hope to others, that I can share my faith, and that I can flourish, Lord. I pray right now for just the Holy Spirit among us. Just open your heart to the Holy Spirit. You are a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Holy Spirit, just breathe across your people today in Jesus' name. Just receive the Holy Spirit right now. Just receive the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Whatever you face tomorrow, the Holy Spirit is there. Come Holy Spirit. Thank you for everyday faith, everyday hope, everyday love. Come Jesus. Come Jesus. Come Jesus. Thank you for what we have received. Now send us, Lord, so that faith can flourish. It may be that this morning you just need somebody to come alongside you and pray with you. Perhaps your faith is facing challenges in terms of your health, in terms of provision, in terms of your family, relationships. That's the joy we have as a body together. We can come on a time like this. And we can just add a bit of fuel to that fire and say, come on, let's pray with you. Let's stand with you. It may even be that you're here today and you're saying, but I don't have faith. I don't have hope. I don't have love. Let us pray for you and let Jesus do his work in your life. So as we end the service, come forward. Let us pray with you. In the week as our life groups meet and wherever people pray for one another, strengthen one another, encourage one another in the faith. May the Lord bless you. May He keep you. May He cause His face to shine upon you. May the Holy Spirit empower you so that you can be the witness of what God has done in your life and that this city can know that God is alive and Jesus is on the throne. May the Lord bless you. Have a wonderful week. We love you lots.
Please come forward for prayer if you need prayer.